Well, we, I'm excited. You picked a great Sunday to be here. We are in week two of our sermon series called The Blessed Life. The Blessed Life. Uncommon life, uncommon happiness. And we talked about last week how this series is the first installment of a much larger series that we'll be preaching over the next nine months called The Uncommon Kingdom. The Uncommon Kingdom. And this is going to be a look into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's those three chapters in the book of Matthew. And that entire sermon is a declaration of life in the kingdom of God. This is the king of the kingdom, Jesus, sharing his heart with the people in the kingdom, teaching them how to live as citizens of the kingdom. And uh, we started by talking last week about how this kingdom life is an uncommon life. It's uncommon because it demands an uncommon righteousness. But one of the things we looked at last week was how this uncommon life, this kingdom life, leads to uncommon happiness. Uncommon happiness. You know, I think everybody is looking for happiness, right? I think, I think all of us can own, I'm looking for it, you're looking for it, we look for it in different places. Whether you're lost, whether you're saved, you're looking for happiness. And um, what we're going to see this morning is in the first 12 verses of Matthew 5, we're going to look at this uncommon blessing that is ours in the kingdom of God. We're going to see where to find this happiness. And we see it in what we call the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. And so that begins in Matthew 5. It's the first 12 verses. Um, and listen, these 12 verses are profoundly important teachings from Jesus. I think they are perfectly and purposefully positioned here at the beginning of this sermon. I don't think Jesus does things on accident. I think this is the greatest teacher of all time, and he's teaching the most important sermon he'll ever preach. And right here at the beginning, he places these 12 verses about blessing and happiness. And so the question that kind of comes to my mind is, why? Why does Jesus start with these words? And I think the answer is because what we find in the Beatitudes is the framework. It kind of becomes the foundation that he builds the rest of the Sermon on the Mount on. So everything that he says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I think Jesus intends for us to view that through the lens of the Beatitudes, through the lens of these uncommon blessings that we receive in him. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to kind of dive in to those first 12 verses, and, and then wear that lens and see how it informs the rest of Sermon on the Mount. So grab your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 5, and we will start in verse 1. Before we jump in and read, I want to give you some context for the Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember that Jesus has begun his earthly ministry. We see in Matthew chapter 4, around verse 23, 24, 25, Jesus is going throughout all of Galilee, and he is preaching a message, which is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it says that as he goes, 
Um, he is healing all kinds of diseases. He is casting out unclean spirits. It says they're bringing all the sick to him, and he's healing them. And as you could imagine what happened for someone who's preaching that kind of sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and healing all of these sick people oppressed with evil spirits, when you, you, as you can imagine, that's going to draw a crowd. And there was this large crowd around him that went with him. Wherever he went, they went. But we see, while we see this crowd on the mountain with him at the Sermon on the Mount, they are not his primary audience. His primary audience is his disciples, those, those 12 men. Because you, what, what you see a little earlier in Matthew chapter 4 is he calls his disciples. Remember, he, he said, come and follow me. So he called these 12 Jewish men out of what it, the lives they were leading, and he calls them to himself and then it says that he takes these 12 and, and he begins to teach them. But I want you to have this picture for just a moment. These 12 guys are now infants in their faith, right? They've been saved maybe some a matter of days, maybe a matter of, of weeks, but they are, they are babies in their faith. And in, in just over two years, about two and a half years, Jesus is going to hand them the reins. And he's going to charge them to go and build the kingdom of God. And so what they're going to take with them as they go and fulfill that great commission, which is also our commission, right? Matthew 28. What they're going to take with them, he begins to teach them right here in Matthew chapter 5. And so one of the pictures I think that we see of Jesus is uh, him as the teacher and the rabbi. We get a very clear picture of Jesus as, as the great teacher. You know, I, I don't often think of him this way. Um, I love to think of Jesus as, as uh, the healer. I love to see him going and healing diseases and casting out those unclean spirits. I love to see him as the miracle worker. You know, I love to see him as the one in the temple turning over the tables, right? I think so many times we have this image of Jesus as a frail person. He wasn't that. I love to see those really, really cool moments with Christ. But the truth is, between each one of those moments were days or weeks or months where Jesus was with his disciples teaching them. Teaching them was what he did more of than anything else. And because Jesus was a, the great teacher, not a great, but the great, because he was the great rabbi, I think we can lean into this teaching, and I want us to kind of see him through that lens. I want to show you where we see that affirmed right in the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he taught them, he began to teach them, saying, he opened his mouth and he taught them. So there's three ways we see just very quickly Jesus as the rabbi. The first, it says he sat down. That's the position of the rabbi. You know, we, we get this position, we get this, uh, excuse me, this image in our mind 
of like a high school classroom or a college classroom where the students sit and the teacher stands. It was the opposite when it came to rabbinical teaching, when it came to, when it came to rabbinical school, if you will. The rabbi sat, and often the disciples would stand, and they would write, and it was a great way for them not to fall asleep in class, you know what I mean? And not, not, not that any of you would do that, uh, you guys, of course not, um, but the, so when we see Jesus sit, he, he takes the position of the rabbi. The next thing it says, it says his disciples came to him. That's the authority of the rabbi. Listen, the rabbi didn't follow disciples. They followed him. They came to where he was because he was the one who had authority. And then it says he opened his mouth and he taught them. That's the wisdom of the rabbi. And this is who Christ is. He's the great teacher. And every good rabbi had a goal in mind. And it was the same goal as that of a master craftsman with an apprentice. Has anyone ever apprenticed with a master craftsman to, to learn a trade? You spent some time as an apprentice. So the, the idea there is um, the apprentice would spend time with the master craftsman. And the master craftsman wasn't just teaching the apprentice how to do a job. He was teaching the apprentice how to become the master craftsman. There's a difference, right? And in the same way, a rabbi wasn't just transmitting information to his disciples. He was making clones of himself. He was teaching them how to walk the way he walked and do what he did and talk the way he talked and have his motives and think the way that he thought. The rabbi wasn't just transmitting information. And the same is true here with Jesus and his disciples. This moment right here isn't just about the disciples knowing what Jesus knew. It was about them becoming who Jesus was. You see the difference there? It wasn't just about Jesus filling their head with knowledge. It was about them becoming like him. Do you know the same charge is, is given to us? Romans 8 verse 29 Paul says, we have been predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That word conformed means shaped, taught, um, molded, pressed, things cut away, things added in. We've been conformed, we've been predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Not to simply know things about him, but to be just like him. That's what this moment is about. And that's how I want us to take this approach this morning as we dive into this look at what it means to have this blessed life, this uncommon happiness. I want you to position yourself on that hill with Jesus. He's seated there, and the King of the kingdom is about to teach us how to have uncommon happiness. Let's start reading again in verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Jesus, you have revealed yourself to us as living water. And Lord, would you refresh us today with your word? Would you be living water in our lives in those areas where we are parched and we are dry and we feel like we're cracking apart, Lord? Would you be living water? God, you have said you're the bread of life. Would you feed our souls today, God? Would you teach us what it means to hunger after you? You have said you're the good shepherd. God, would you lead us into the truth of your word? Jesus, you said you're the light of the world. Would you illuminate, would you shine that light, that radiant, marvelous light on us and illuminate your word to us today? We are completely dependent on you moving. So Holy Spirit, would you come and do that? In Jesus' name, amen. So, As we jump in this morning to these 12 verses in Matthew, um, and we look at these Beatitudes, um, I want us to find, I think there's two things we're going to glean. There's two primary truths that I want us to take away, and I want us to let those truths then, over the next few weeks, as we unpack these individually, kind of become the, the lens that we see them through. And here's the first truth that I think we see in uh, the Beatitudes, it's this. The life of blessing that Jesus has for us begins in the heart. The life of blessing that Jesus has for us begins in the heart. Uncommon blessing begins in relationship with Jesus, right? Before Jesus ever gave the first instruction to his disciples on how they should live and what they should do in the kingdom of God, before he gave them the first instruction, he began to teach them who they were in him. Oh, this is important. It's important that we get this. Because the Beatitudes, before they are anything else, they are a description of the character and the heart of those who are in the kingdom of God. Jesus is always concerned with the heart first. Did you know that? Jesus is always concerned with your heart first. Oh, he wants your hands to do good things. He wants your mouth to speak good things. He wants your feet to go places where they are doing, but before any of that, he cares about your heart. And this life of uncommon happiness begins in the heart. It's it's a unique way for us to think that Jesus cares first about who we are and not what we do. That's different than the way most people build relationships, right? 
most of the relationships we build begin with what we do, right? We extend an invitation, we call, we extend kindness, we do something. A relationship starts, and then over the course of that, we learn who each other are, and the friendship really begins to take off. And Jesus, like everything else he's doing, he's kind of flipping that, and he says, before I care about what you do, I care about who you are. You see, I think too often we look at these beatitudes, these blessings that he preaches and teaches us here, and we see them as a prescription for getting into heaven. We, we look at them, we go, if I do these things, right? If, if I follow these steps, God will be pleased with me and I will get into heaven. But these verses are not prescriptive, they are descriptive. They're not a prescription, they're a description. What do I mean? They're not a list we keep of how to get into the kingdom, they are the evidence that we are already in the kingdom and our hearts have been transformed by the king of the kingdom. These aren't the things we do to get into heaven. This is who we are when heaven has gotten into us. You with me? Y'all are pretty quiet this morning. I'm going to shout a little bit if you don't come on. All right? <laughs> this is not what we do to get into heaven. This is who we are when Jesus, the King of heaven, has gotten into us. That's what this is. And then through that, through that heart being transformed, that blessing, that blessed life coming from him, it then pours out onto everything else we do, but it begins in the heart. It is these eight character traits that, we, that we're going to look at in the Beatitudes. Um, uh, the, the, now, nine times he uses the word blessed, but that ninth time is, a, is a, just a, an expansion of uh, the last one. And so there's really eight unique Beatitudes. And here's what these are. These Beatitudes are like the uniform that we wear as the citizens in the kingdom of God. They're like the robes that we put on that set us apart from the world. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you entered into a room or a place and you immediately stood out. Maybe you were just crazy overdressed or crazy underdressed. You ever been in one of those, those situations where you walk in and you're like, I have made a series of fashion, uh, terrible fashion choices and I want to go home. You ever been in that place? So when, I was, when Carrie and I were in seminary, I uh, sang in a choir. Uh, it was this massive choir. And every year we would go to Bass Hall in downtown Fort Worth and we would, we would do Handel's Messiah with the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra. And so here we are and it was this black tie event, everybody in tuxedos and all those things. And so um, if you've ever been to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, you know that where the campus is, it's not in this amazing, affluent a, a part of town. That's not where it is. This is, this is in a little more of a rough area uh, here in Fort Worth. And so I am dressed to the nines. I get in my car and I, I realize I'm out of gas. And I don't mean I've got a little gas. I might make it. I mean, I'm not getting more than a mile or two if I don't put some, some gas in this car. And so I stop at the first gas station that I come to. And it's one that normally uh, just looked a little bit rough. And so I would normally have passed by, but I couldn't, I couldn't afford to. And I got out of my car 
dressed in a, in a tuxedo, bow tie, cummerbund, shiny shoes, looking like a boss, right? I get out of my car, and I don't know if you have ever heard the, the brakes lock up on a whole situation, but it happened in a parking lot at that. I'm telling you, I heard everybody's brain go, and they just locked up and looked at me, right? And I'm looking at them, <laughs> and they go, eh, you know, I'm telling you, I stood out like a fly on a wedding cake. I stood way out, all right? And I wanted to tell them, I'm not dressed for here. I'm not dressed for where I am. I'm dressed for where I'm going. When we put on the uniform of the kingdom, when we wrap ourselves in the robes of these blessings in Matthew 5, we, we are set apart. We are, we are, we are, we stand out. Why? Because we're not dressed for where we are. We're dressed for where we're going. We are dressed in the robes of the kingdom of heaven. I love what Pastor Derwin Gray said. He said, the Beatitudes are a picture of what God's people under his rule and reign of grace live like on earth. He said they are the ethos, the character of heaven invading earth. It's like God's people bring the currency of heaven and spend it on earth, enriching everyone's life. Are you wrapped in the robes of heaven? Do you have on the uniform of the kingdom that life of uncommon happiness and blessing? It's going to make you stand out. And that's the work that Jesus does in our heart. He puts that work in our hearts, conforms it, and then it pours out onto everything else we do. There's a, another way that I think we see Jesus deal with our hearts in these 12 verses. And for me, it's just this reminder of the brilliant teacher that Jesus is. When you look at these eight blessings, we see that Jesus has given them to us in two groups of four. So you've got the first four and you've got the second four. And the first four uh, are, are verses three through six. And the second four are verses, I believe, seven through 10. And here's what's important to take away. Those first four Beatitudes deal with our posture and our position and our relationship with God. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Another way to say that is blessed are those who have recognized their own spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who mourn over that sin. Blessed are those who are meek. They're humbled because of their sinful condition. And then blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. These, this is the evidence of what this is, is, is a recognition of um, something that only God can reveal to us. This is a life of complete and utter dependence on God. And we, we see those four Blessings of poverty of spirit, mourning over our sin. This deals with our posture and our relationship with God. And those second four deal with our relationship to men. They speak to our posture before the world. He says, blessed are the merciful, those that extend mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. That speaks to our motives, those who have pure motives. Blessed are the peacemakers and then those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Why take time to notice this? First of all, because I don't believe Jesus did anything on accident. 
I just don't think he did anything on accident. And he's establishing for us a critical reality. And that is that the blessing of the kingdom, the life of uncommon blessing, begins in our relationship with God. And then it extends out into our posture before the world. What do I mean? I mean that until you have recognized the poverty of your soul, that you are poor in spirit, until you have mourned over the fact that you are spiritually poor and your heart is broken, and then you've been humbled by the fact that you've recognized you're a sinner, you've been made meek, and until then your eyes begin to turn to the one who can fill you and you start to hunger and thirst for God, until that relationship with God is established, we don't know how to be merciful to the world. I don't know how to extend a mercy I haven't received. I don't know how to have pure motives. I don't know how to be a a peacemaker because until I've experienced that in God, I don't have peace. And I certainly don't know how to stand against the persecution for righteousness if I haven't hungered and thirsted after that righteousness. You see how Jesus put these together for us? It begins in that relationship with God, with him pouring in that blessing, that transformation, that, that conforming our hearts to the image of Christ. And then it goes out. This is why when Jesus was asked by the lawyer who was trying to trick him, hey, Jesus, you're pretty smart. Tell us what's the most important commandment. And Jesus said, it's this. First, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, but it's second, and it's this. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the reality that Jesus is teaching, that it first begins in this relationship. Think about it like this. I don't know if anyone has ever really examined a diamond. And I'm not talking about somebody's got one on a ring. I mean, that's beautiful. But I'm talking about, has anyone ever put one of those weird, like, monocle doodads on where you're kind of, you know, looking and holding it up and doing one? Anybody ever done that? I've never done it. Um, A jeweler is always looking for the perfect diamond, right? And there's four things they're looking for uh, to decide the value and the worth of a diamond. And it's four C's. It's carat, which is to do with the weight. It's clarity. You know, is it clear? Are there impurities in there? It's color and it's cut. Those are the four C's that they're looking for to determine the weight, or excuse me, to determine the value and the worth of a diamond. That's how they set it. And I want to show you a a picture of a diamond, one of the most expensive in the world. This is called the Sensi Diamond. And ladies, if you're in the market for a diamond, this one will set you back uh, just a cool $1.1 billion, with a B, dollars, uh, $1.1 billion. As Carrie and I shop for diamonds, we just have to acknowledge this is just a skosh out of our price range. Not much, right? We're going to keep saving pennies and putting back. We'll get there. We'll get there, babe. $1.1 billion. Um, It's a very expensive diamond. So what makes this so valuable? Well, it's, it's those four C's. It's that weight that it is. This, this actually comes from a much larger diamond, a portion of which actually sits in the crown of the king of France. 
So there's this much, it's the carrot, it's the weight, it's the clarity. It's the fact that they look in there and there's no impurities in it, that it's very clear. And then it's the color. Did you know a lot of times these yellow diamonds, these ones that have color like pink and reds and blues are more valuable than the, than the white diamonds? And, and so it's the color and then it's the way they've cut this diamond and it has become incredibly valuable. But can I tell you something about this diamond? What is it that makes this diamond draw our eye? What is it that makes it shine and sparkle and, and be beautiful? It isn't the rock. It's the light that comes in. If you were to take this diamond and put it in the dark, you know what you got? You got a billion-dollar rock. That's what you got. But when you take this diamond out of the dark and you put it into the light, you know what you see? You start to see that clarity because it starts to absorb the light from the outside and then reflect it and refract it back out. And so you see all the beautiful cuts and you see the clarity and the color is illuminated. Listen, the same is true with us. Our job as citizens of the kingdom is to shine forth the radiant glory of Jesus. Well, how do we do that? We get in the light and we absorb that light and we let it fill us and then we shine his clarity and his beauty and his glory to all the world. That's the blessing. That's the blessing. It begins in the heart, begins this life of uncommon happiness. It begins in your relationship with Jesus. And if you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life, you will not attain this life of happiness. Oh, you'll chase a bunch of stuff, but I want you to hear me say this, you'll never catch it. It, it, it. This life of blessing that Jesus has for us begins in the heart, in our relationship with him. Here's the second thing I want you to see. This life of blessing that Jesus has for us is truly uncommon. We talked last week about how that word means rare, right? It's, it's truly uncommon. It causes us to stand out. What is this life of uncommon blessing he talks about in Matthew 5? What does Jesus mean when he uses the word blessed? He uses it nine times. And last week, we kind of talked how it means this a deep, abiding happiness and joy. The Greek word that is translated for blessed is the word makarios. Makarios. And makarios literally means supremely fortunate. That's what the word means. It means supremely fortunate. And it, it's a word that would have been given to someone who had just had the best moment of their life, very well off, and, and is just having this life that is so um, fortunate, it makes them stand out. And listen, this wasn't a monet just a monetary condition. Someone that was living a Macarios life was living this life of fortune mentally, physically, in their relationships, in their, in their emotions. This was a word of congratulations. This was a word that was reserved for someone who, who was to be envied. It was the height of happiness. That's this Makarios life that Jesus, hey, give me some of that. Anybody else? I didn't know that word before last week, but I promise you, I'm going to look for some Makarios. I like that. That's good. 
But notice how Jesus uses it. Ooh, he uses it in a very uncommon way. He uses it in a, uh, a way that, if we're honest, it, it doesn't make sense for our culture and, and for the world around us. And, and even for us, it's almost jarring uh, the way that he uses it. Look at what he says. He says, blessed, makarios, supremely fortunate are the poor in spirit. Supremely fortunate are those who mourn. <laughs> Supremely fortunate are those who are persecuted, who are slandered, who are mistreated. These don't sound like blessings. As a matter of fact, they are the things that we often try to avoid in this life. But Jesus isn't teaching an old kingdom. He's teaching a new kingdom, a new measure of, of, of happiness, a new measure of joy, a new way of living. And he says, supremely fortunate are you when you see the poverty of your spirit. Do you know that if our culture were to rewrite the Beatitudes, it would sound something like this. Blessed are you if you are powerful because you can have anything you want. Blessed are you if you are first because you'll always feel important. Blessed are you if you are never left out because you'll always be reminded that you're first and you, you matter more. Blessed are you if your life is free of hardship and struggle because your days will be easy. But that is not what Jesus teaches. Jesus says, congratulations. You are to be envied. Supremely fortunate are you when you are poor in spirit, when you mourn your sinful condition, when you are meek and crucifying your pride, when you are hungering, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, when you are persecuted because of that righteousness. Why? Because it affirms your citizenship in the kingdom. When you are, you are supremely fortunate because you have found the secret you found the secret that I'm not going to forfeit my soul in an effort to gain this world. You have found the secret that says I can come empty-handed, but even in my hands are empty, my heart is singing with joy because of who Christ is and what he's done. You are supremely fortunate because yours is the kingdom of heaven. That is what Jesus is saying. You are, take a moment and rethink with me those beatitudes, those blessings. And listen to what it would say if we use those words that makarios means. To be envied are you. If you are poor in spirit, to be envied are you if you are Mourning, supremely fortunate are you if you are meek and humble. Congratulations if you are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Supremely fortunate to be envied are you if you are um, merciful to others. Making peace, having a pure 
motive. This is a different kingdom that Jesus is building. He is teaching that those who are uncommonly blessed and have this blessed life of happiness have supernaturally interwoven their lives into his and in doing so they have discovered the uncommon blessing and listen that blessing isn't about always feeling good it isn't about always having good things happen to you it's about becoming more and more and more like the king of the kingdom and church i want you to hear me say the deeper that we immerse ourselves in Jesus. The more that Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to his image, the more that that verse is true for us, the happier you will be. Did you know that Jesus prayed that you would have this life? He prayed for us to have this. He prayed to his father, Lord, give them the joy that you and I have. Boy, that's Macario's life. <laughs> and he prayed that in that life we would be set apart in this world. Look at John 17, verse 15. He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And then listen to what he prays. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. Jesus has called us to be citizens of the kingdom in this world. And just as he was sent, we are sent. And we are sent to live out and display this blessed life of joy and satisfaction and contentment. And it has nothing to do with our circumstances and everything to do with him. So I, I just want to ask you, are you experiencing this Makarios, supremely fortunate life? Do you feel like you live your life in the uncommon blessing of the kingdom? You cannot have that apart from Jesus. So let's just ask ourselves together, what is it that you are pursuing for happiness? What is it you're chasing? Are, are you chasing after um, a position in your job? If I, if I get that position, oh, it's going to be, I'm going to make it. Are you chasing after a certain amount of money? If I, if I fill the bank this, this much, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be happy. Are you, are you chasing after it in the success of your children? God help us the number of parents that I see bind their happiness to the success of their children. What if your kid doesn't make the team? What if he doesn't go to college? What if she doesn't get the scholarship? Can you still be happy? Not if you've bound your happiness up in their success. Are you, are you pursuing it in what you own, your possessions, are you pursuing happiness in what other people think of you? Boy, I've done that. Jesus preached this life. He patterned this life for us. 
He prayed that we would have this life. Listen, he purchased this life on the cross, and in him is the power to live this life. So is the king of the kingdom the king of your heart? Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? The Makarios blessing, supremely fortunate. The uncommon blessed life is waiting in a relationship with Jesus. That's where it is. And if you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life, I want you to know you can do that this morning. Our ministers will be right down front. And if you need to do that, you come and take our hand. For some of you, though, today is the day. And now is the time where you begin to repent of the things you have pursued happiness in. And those aren't always bad things. Those aren't always bad things. Your children's success is not bad. It's good. It's a good thing. But it isn't where your happiness is. Your, your fortune, your growing, your success in your job, the expansion of your profession, the, the, all of those, none of them are bad. Unless they're the well where you drag the bucket to draw happiness from. And for some of us, we need to repent this morning of where we have pursued happiness. What does that look like? Repentance is a recognition that what I'm doing and the way I'm going is wrong. And I need to confess that the what I'm doing and the way I'm going is wrong. And then turn, receive that forgiveness and turn and go the other way. Some of you need to repent this morning. And here's how you would do that this morning. You can come right down here and pray. You can sit down and pray. You can kneel at the altar. You can come take one of our ministers by the hand and let us pray with you. You don't pray with us because we're perfect. You pray with us because we know what it means to pursue other things. And we want to navigate with you back to the throne of grace. So what is it that the Lord's calling you to do this morning? What are you chasing that you need to let go of? And have you made the king of the kingdom, the king of your heart? Let's pray. Lord, we love you and thank you for the power of your word. And Father, I, I'm, I am completely insufficient to illuminate this word, but your Holy Spirit at work is more than enough. And so, Lord, I pray that over the next few moments, as Zach and the team lead, God, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, move our hearts to take the step of obedience. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.